Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thanks, Bob. It is hard to fail, but it is worse never to have tried to succeed. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Courage is not having the strength to go on. It is going on when you don't have the strength. What do all three of these sayings have in common? All of these quotations are attributed to Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th president of the United States. Roosevelt is considered by many historians to be one of America's greatest presidents. He was clearly an incredibly wise and intelligent man. But Roosevelt also coined the phrase, comparison is the thief of joy. Sit back and think about that for a moment. I think Roosevelt is definitely onto something here. Comparison is incompatible with gratitude and thankfulness. And joy cannot exist where there's no gratitude or thankfulness. Comparison truly is a thief of joy. But this can play itself out in several different ways. There can be something that we desire that is absent in our lives and present in the lives of others. We can look at what others have and want that. A high-paying job, a relationship, popularity, certain abilities or character traits, children, or a spouse. Or there can be something that we hate that is present in our lives but absent in the lives of others a chronic illness or severe diagnosis, past and present abuses, anxiety or depression, overwhelming responsibilities, or significant relational strife in our family. While I agree with Theodore Roosevelt that comparison will truly rob us of joy, I think it's important to consider the source of comparison. And so the Bible shows us a progression that often leads to the sinful act of comparison. God's word shows us that comparison often occurs when his call on our lives are met with difficulty from living in a fallen world while trying to faithfully follow Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to see here in John chapter 21 verses 15 through 22 this morning. The discipline and the suffering involved in following Jesus' call on our lives tempts us to take our eyes off of our Savior and compare our situation with that of others around us. However, because God perfectly loves each of us in specific ways, we can joyfully refuse comparison and follow Jesus, even when it's incredibly costly. If you don't have a Bible here with you this morning, there are paperback Bibles in the seats in front of you. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 22 is on page 529 of those Bibles. You can go ahead and turn there now. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. 
He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one, also, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Thank you. You may be seated. As we consider these eight verses in John chapter 21, we will see that because God loves us perfectly in specific ways, we can expect three things. We can each expect a specific call from Jesus. We can each expect specific difficulties in following Jesus. And we can each expect to be tempted specifically by comparison. This passage naturally builds upon itself, so we're first going to look at how we can each expect a specific call from Jesus in verses 15 through 17. To fully appreciate what's happening in these initial verses, we need to revisit the events of the night of the crucifixion. Though Peter had proudly claimed that he would gladly lay down his life for Jesus on the night of the crucifixion, Peter denied him three times just as Jesus had predicted. During times of relatively little adversity, Peter was quick to assume his faithfulness to Jesus. But during the difficult and terrifying events of the night of the crucifixion, Peter denied him three times out of fear that he might face the same fate as Jesus since he was one of the disciples. I cannot imagine the guilt and the shame that Peter must have been carrying around with him from the time of the crucifixion to this conversation that he had with Jesus. He had failed Jesus in spectacular fashion, which makes Jesus' response here in John 21 all the more beautiful. In verse 15, we see that Jesus is with all of the disciples eating breakfast. After they had finished eating, Jesus asked Peter in front of the other disciples, do you love me? And Jesus doesn't only ask them this one time. He asks him the same question three times, once in verse 15 and then in 16 and then again in verse 17. And Peter is grieved when Jesus asks him this a third time because he thinks that Jesus must be doubting his love for him. Why else would he ask the same question three times? But Jesus wasn't doubting Peter's love for him. No, actually, it was, it was Peter's own guilt and shame that he was experiencing due to his past failure that drove him to this conclusion. Rather, Jesus is meeting Peter in a specific and unique way 
due to Peter's past failure. Jesus was giving Peter the opportunity to affirm his love for him by asking the same question three times. He did this to give Peter complete assurance that he had been forgiven for denying his Lord. Jesus was replacing Peter's three failures with three affirmations of his love for Jesus. What a beautiful picture of the complete forgiveness that Jesus Christ provides for Peter. Like I said before, I can't imagine the weight of the guilt and shame that Peter must have been carrying around with him for those days between the crucifixion and this seaside conversation with Jesus. But I also can't imagine the overwhelming emotions that Peter must have been feeling for the decades to come, looking back on this conversation with his savior, where he reminded that he was completely forgiven. If you're here this morning, or you're watching online, and you've not experienced this kind of complete forgiveness from Jesus, you can experience that today. You can experience this complete forgiveness that Peter did by trusting that Jesus has paid for all of your sins by dying on the cross in your place. Only Jesus can forgive us of our sins and remove our guilt and our shame. No one and nothing else can do that. It takes Jesus Christ, the one who is truly God and truly man, to remove us, to remove our sins from us. As we continue looking at these three verses, though, we're going to see that Jesus was not only interested in offering this forgiveness to Peter. In each of these three verses, we also see a response from Jesus to Peter to feed his sheep. Now, this is merely a metaphor that describes Peter's new role as one who would be responsible for taking care of Jesus' people, the church. This is equally beautiful to the fact that Jesus had forgiven Peter. Despite Peter's sin and failure, Jesus not only forgave him, but he tasked him with the highly important role of shepherding the early church. This is restoration. This is astounding, the type of restoration that Jesus would offer to Peter. Peter, however, is not the only one with a specific call from Jesus. Jesus has met all of us in specific ways. He has forgiven us all of our individual sins, and he has called us something to something unique and specific as well. Now, this is not to deny that there are general callings that all Christians have on their lives. As followers of Christ, you and I were all called to make disciples, to share our faith, to pray, and to live holy lives that are pleasing and honoring to the Lord. These are all non-negotiable for Christians. So how do we understand the relationship that exists between the general calling that all Christians have on their lives and the specific ways that God has called each of us to ministry? I think that a great way to understand this could be seen at the end of every single movie. As Sarah can attest, I absolutely love watching movies to the very end. I love watching through the entire credits, especially when there's really good music playing over the credits. Even though the actors reserve, uh, receive the vast 
amount of recognition in movies. The credits tell a really comprehensive story of all of the details that go into making every single film. Now, there are some other positions that obviously receive more recognition in movies as well, right? The, the director, vitally important, or the casting coordinator, or the executive producer. But what about positions like the junior drafts person, or the petty cash buyer, or one of my favorites, because I don't know what it is, but I think the title's great, the best boy grip. Uh, if you know what that is, please tell me after this. I think that's great. You've likely never heard of these jobs, but they are so helpful that every single major motion picture finds them an absolute necessity to include in their film. And when all of these incredibly specific positions are executed well, the overarching goal of creating an excellent movie occurs. Now, similarly, all Christians have been called to the overarching task of building up the church, but we do so through the specific ways that God has gifted us and also called us. Maybe your calling is to be a full-time parent who intentionally raises their children to know God. Maybe your call is to serve behind the scenes of church so that worship on Sunday mornings can run smoothly. Maybe it's living like Jesus when none of your classmates or your coworkers do, even when that's incredibly unpopular. And maybe it's spending time intentionally forming relationships with people in the community so that you can share the good news of Jesus with them. If you feel like you're currently engaged in the specific calling that you have from God, let me just take a moment to say thank you and encourage you, continue to do that. That is vital for the health and well-being of the church. And if you're not sure how this might play itself out in your lives, let me just suggest to you that you start having conversations with people who know you well and can suggest and recommend the special ways that God has created you, the unique giftings that you have, and consider how you could be a blessing to building up the church. I think that a great question that we all need to continually ask ourselves is, am I being faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to me? While it's encouraging that God uses each of us in specific ways to build up the church, we are still sinful and imperfect people who live in a fallen world. God uses hardship and suffering that we experience in this fallen world to further refine our character and to further conform us into the image of his son. And so that's why we can also each expect to experience specific difficulties as we pursue our calling from God. Though he had graciously forgiven Peter and charged him with the specific task of shepherding the early church, the next two verses shift from Peter's restoration to a specific difficulty that Peter is going to face. In verse 18, Jesus tells Peter that his obedience and following God's will for his life will end in Peter's crucifixion. So some take Jesus' words here to merely describe the, difficult, the difficulties of growing old. But this makes almost no sense when you think about what we see here in verse 18 and then also later in verse 22. 
Here in verse 18, we have two clues that show us that Jesus is definitely referencing crucifixion. So first, to, to stretch out one's hands, this is a reference to the Roman practice of crucifixion where a condemned prisoner would have the beam of the cross placed on their shoulders and then tied to their outstretched arms. And then we also see that here in verse 18 that the intentions of those who are gonna be with Peter are in conflict with what Peter would want. And verse 22 further confirms this as Jesus mentions possibly preserving John's life until the second coming. This only makes sense if Jesus is contrasting John's preservation with Peter's martyrdom. After Jesus tells Peter this shocking news, he then simply says this, follow me. Now Jesus is actually calling Peter to follow him down the beach, but he's doing more than this. He is calling Peter to faithfully follow him, even though uh, his uh, faithfulness to God will end in agony and torture and death. For Peter, the cost of following Jesus will be incredibly high and marked specifically by martyrdom. Though none of us have the benefit of knowing the specific discipline and suffering that will mark our lives as we follow Jesus, we can be certain that this is not unique to Peter. We can be certain of that because, again, we live in a fallen world where sin has stained every aspect of God's creation. And we can also be certain of this because the New Testament persistently confirms this, that because our Savior, his life and his ministry were marked by suffering, that is what we as his followers can absolutely expect as well. Horatio Spafford was a man who was well acquainted with suffering. He was a prominent American lawyer in the middle part of the 19th century. During the great Chicago fire, Spafford lost the vast majority of uh, his investments. And exactly two years later, Spafford had his wife and his daughters sail from America to England where he would later join them for a vacation. But Horatio's wife, Anna, was the only member of, this, of the family to survive the voyage as their ship collided with another, claiming the lives of their four young daughters. While Spafford was sailing from America to England to join his wife, he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. This song perfectly captures the sentiments of what we see here in John 21, 18 and 19. After facing unspeakable loss, the words of this hymn don't deny his pain and suffering, but they do put Spafford's pain and suffering in perspective. Spafford's words show that even though his loss was devastating and painful, he would not let it disrupt his focus on following his savior, Jesus, who had shed his own blood for Spafford's sins. Verses 18 and 19 show us that Jesus expects unconditional obedience here. This is what he expects from Peter, and this is what he expects from us as well. We are to follow him without exception, even when there is pain and suffering in our lives, and even when we don't understand God's purposes. 
As people who have been redeemed by our suffering Savior, we are called to obediently endure whatever God allows in our lives. But the sad reality is that even for those of us who have been forgiven and redeemed by our Savior, sin still resides in our hearts and it tempts us to draw our attention off of our Savior. When we're more focused on the things of this earth than the things of God, we are also more vulnerable to the specific temptation of comparison, as we'll see in verses 20 through 22. After Jesus calls Peter to follow him on a walk down the beach and also in faithfulness to his calling, as they're walking, Peter turns around and sees that John is following them down the beach. And when Peter sees John, he asks Jesus this question, Lord, what about this man? After hearing that his own faithfulness to following Jesus would end in his martyrdom, I think this question makes a lot of sense. For Peter, the cost of discipleship would be incredibly high. Would it be for John as well? Jesus responds to Peter by saying that John's obedience and John's faithfulness isn't any of Peter's business. In fact, it wouldn't even be any of Peter's business if Peter's life ended in a violent death while John's life was preserved until the second coming. Jesus had given Peter a specific calling. He had noted the specific difficulties that would mark the end of Peter's life, and he had called Peter to follow him. That is all Peter needed to know. Jesus', Jesus final words are recorded in the Gospel of John right here. It simply says, you follow me. Now the words that Jesus says to Peter here, they're obviously for Peter's benefit, but not only for his benefit. They're said for us as well. When hardship and suffering are part of our personal call to follow Jesus, our hearts are often drawn to compare our situation to those around us. Verses 20 through 22 have taken on significant importance in my life over the last few years. As many of you know, I've sensed a specific call from God to become a pastor, and so I'm in the middle of my seminary degree right now. And as many of you also know, Sarah and I have experienced significant hardship that make it so incredibly difficult to not compare our situation to those around us. Over the span of four years, Sarah and I experienced four miscarriages. Now we both decided that we wanted to trust the Lord one more time and try to get pregnant. So during that time, my prayers started to shift. So I wasn't only asking the Lord for a healthy child, but I started asking the Lord, please do not let us experience the nightmare of miscarriage one more time. And so as we continued to try to get pregnant, months turned into years, and we continued waiting. And that was really painful, but at least it seemed like the Lord was answering my second prayer request, which I was happy about. Two and a half years later, on the morning that I was leaving for a week of classes in Orlando, Sarah and I found out that we were pregnant again. On the morning that I was traveling home, Sarah nearly passed away as she experienced an ectopic pregnancy. 
Now, thankfully, I was able to get to the ER in time to see her before her surgery, and the surgery went incredibly well, but we lost our fifth child on that day. That was exactly one year ago today. And though much of the last seven years have been filled with waiting and a lot of pain, this last year especially has left me disoriented and wounded to where I'm asking myself, just like Israel, God, do you hate me? You must hate me. You surely can't love me. It's incredibly difficult not to compare my situation with that of those around me whom the, the Lord has blessed with children. The pain and sadness that Sarah and I have experienced often just quite frankly feels more severe than those around me when I consider that. Now, I don't want to diminish anyone else's suffering But I just share this to show you that our passage here today, John 21, this is relevant because this is a battle that is going on in my heart on a regular basis. Like Peter, I often look around me and ask Jesus questions that compare my situation to the situations of others. God, why have you miraculously provided children for these other couples who've struggled with infertility or with miscarriage and not us? Or why have you blessed this other family with three or four or five children and we don't even have one? You see, all of these questions have a horizontal aspect to them as I compare the hardships that Sarah and I face with that of other Christians. And my biggest concern often isn't whether I'm being obedient to whatever God allows in my life or doesn't allow in my life. Often my biggest concern is that God seems to be making the cost of trusting him and following him more difficult for me and my wife than for others around me. And when I start comparing my situation to those around me, I desperately need to be reminded of the words that we see here. What is it to you? You follow me. Now, these, these words are not said out of cold indifference. I guarantee that. They're said out of great love and concern for our well-being. How do I know that? I know that because of what preceded this conversation. In his great love for sinners like you and me, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross happened before he, calls Je- before he calls Peter to incredibly costly discipleship, and the same is true for all of us here today. Jesus Christ laid down his life on our behalf before he calls us to follow him. Jesus didn't only pay for our sins on the cross. He did this, but he's also adopted us as his children, as his sons and daughters, to be part of his family And one day we will all experience the glories of eternity with our God, where God will be our God and we will be his people. Even the most intense forms of suffering and pain cannot nullify love this extravagant. I'd love for you to consider the areas of your life that cause you to compare your situation with others around you. Again, maybe you're experiencing problems that work or at school, ongoing health concerns, hardships in your marriage, frustrations raising your children, 
an emotional disorder or trauma in your past or in your present. Whatever it is that you wish wasn't part of God's plan for conforming you into the image of Jesus, the command to follow him obediently and faithfully cannot be understood apart from his death on the cross in our place. The thing that we all need most is not the absence of suffering in our lives, and it's not even the assurance that other Christians will suffer as well. The thing that we all need most is to faithfully follow our Savior in the path of suffering that he walked before us. Jesus calls us to follow him so that we would be more like him, regardless of our circumstances. Now, there are beautiful, beautiful gospel implications here for us. Jesus experienced the wrath of God because of our sinful tendencies to resist costly discipleship, and we have been credited with Christ's perfect obedience to the will of his Father. Christ died and took on our punishment for all of the times that we're faithless in our discipleship and for all of the times that we care more about comparing our situation to others than faithfully following him. But praise God that suffering does not have the final word. Hebrews 12.2 reminds us that Christ endured suffering on the cross because of the joy that was set before him and that he is now sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus' suffering led to his glorification as he is now reigning for all eternity in the throne room of heaven. And the same is true for Peter. The path of suffering led to glory for Peter as well. Even though Peter had failed spectacularly on the night of the crucifixion and even though he knew his life was going to end in martyrdom, the forgiveness that he had received from Jesus Christ completely transformed him for the rest of his life. God powerfully used Peter not only to write two books of the Bible which have instructed the church for 2,000 years, but he also preached so that thousands of people would come to know Christ and place their faith in him, and that's recorded for us in the book of Acts. On the day of his martyrdom, Peter was ushered into eternity where he will forever experience the glorious presence of Jesus, his Savior, the one who had forgiven and restored him. And brothers and sisters, suffering is not the last word for us either. Glory is the last word for us. Because we have been united to Christ by faith, glory will be our end as well. Until then, let's strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful, focused, and obedient to the calling that God has placed on our lives, no matter what the cost. May the love and forgiveness that we have all experienced through Christ motivate us to faithfully fulfill the specific calling that God has placed on our lives, endure the suffering that he allows, and forsake comparison. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you that you are a God who not only forgives undeserving sinners, but would even use them for your kingdom purposes. Thank you for the love that you direct towards us that is most clearly demonstrated on the cross. I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would use the gospel message to further conform all of us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, when we are tempted to comparison, 
or to run from costly discipleship. I pray again that your spirit would give us the strength to obey. And when we fail, we thank you that we have a savior who will forgive us when we confess our sins. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.